Hello, and welcome to Plutarch's Greeks and Romans, a podcast taking you on a tour through ancient Greek and Roman history, seen through the lives of the most famous and influential people who lived it, with the ancient historian and biographer Plutarch as our guide and companion. Welcome back, everyone, to the podcast. Seems like forever since I led an episode with Ryan dominating the airways over the last several biographies. However, I'm back with an exciting biography today, that of Furious Camillus, who many historians, Plutarch included, say is the second founder of Rome, and in my opinion, is one of the greatest Roman leaders, at least up until the empire, and even then still holds his own. It should be noted, this would be a two-part series as there is just so much ground to cover with Camillus and his involvement in one of the most important periods in Roman history. Camillus, like other great Roman leaders before him, was a product of his time. During the Camillus era and those years leading up to his rise, the Senate and consulship were out of favor with the masses over familiar misgivings such as inequality, access to grain, elitism, lack of political voice, etc., but Plutarch exclaims that the masses were the most fed up with the concentration of power they saw in the hands of the consuls. The consulship, once a revered two-person office, was now perceived as steeped in too much power for just two people and felt they served the oligarchy much more than regular Romans. Probably a correct sentiment on both fronts. So during this time in Roman history, the people preferred to elect military tribunes, who acted with full consular power, same as the consuls, but they shared this power with six tribunes, and as Plutarch says, this power was less obnoxious to the regular Romans than the consular power structure was. This is likely one reason Camillus never, ever in his long-legged life, ran for consul, as not to be at odds with majority opinion. This is an obvious break from traditional Roman political advancement that most senatorial families would go through. Camillus came from the lineage of the Furi Camilli, which was a prominent family in the Latin city of Tusculum, which a century prior were bitter enemies of Rome, aligned with the Volsci and Aquii. But after Roman victories, the city of Tusculum decided to join Rome, and soon after they were fully integrated into Roman society, with the House of Furi rising to prominence by the 450s BC. By the turn of the 3rd century, the House of Furi, while not as powerful and politically prominent as many of the other patrician houses, was outpacing those older families in terms of political influence. So while Plutarch contends that Camillus came from humbler beginnings, we must remember, Plutarch is merely contrasting the promise and wealth of the House of Furii to their contemporaries, who had centuries to develop their wealth, prestige, and dominance in Roman life. However, I doubt regular Romans had the same view of a humble Camillus. Camillus's rise to personal problems came, and should be of no surprise, through military valor, where, while serving under Postumius Tubertus during the wars with the Aquinas and the Volscians, Camillus is said to have ridden out from his formation to spearhead a direct assault on the enemy's most experienced troops, putting them to flight even as an enemy arrow dangled from his thigh. Postumius was so impressed, he awarded Camillus with the office of censor which in those days was of great repute and authority. So Camillus, through military heroics, had launched himself into a prestigious political role, the point of military heroics during Roman times, where it is also said he excelled and made some taxation reforms, which would help firm up the Republic's finances after decades of military campaigning that had bled the Roman treasury dry. Camillus has now proven himself as an able military man, 
and an able administrator of state affairs, two key qualities for anyone chasing glory and prominence in Roman high society of the time. What I find interesting about the rise of Camillus in Roman society is how less than a century earlier his family had been fighting the Romans. I think this really shows how the Romans were great at integrating their enemies into their culture and turning them into forces to make the state more powerful. That's a great point, Ryan, and a point that Rome will repeat numerous times throughout the remainder of the Republic and well into the Empire. Yeah, and as you like to point out, during the later days of the Empire, when Rome stopped welcoming their vanquished enemies, it was something that ultimately weakened the Empire. But I guess that's a conversation for later episodes. Yeah, 100%. So the newly minted House of Furii, fully entrenched in Roman politics, and led by a rising leader within, having proven himself a capable and brave fighter, along with the ability to get things done administratively, Camillus is off to the races with a very bright future. Obviously, these events occurred over a few years, and during those same years, larger events were unfolding, that in time would bring Camillus and his house to the forefront of Roman political and military heights for years to come. So now now that we've given a bit of an introduction to Camillus, we're going to have to shift a little bit to the main political and military issues of the time, which were shaping up not so favorably for the Romans. During the same time, Camillus was putting down incursions from opportunistic enemies of Rome. Rome was embroiled in a third war of the Etruscans, and what many saw as a last stand for them in their largest city known as Vi. The war was not traditional, as it, as it was defined as a siege on Vi, as opposed to various pitched battles between the two forces, which dominated the prior wars of this trilogy struggle of empires. Vi had suffered strategic defeats in the past two wars with the Romans and began to abandon their hope for a larger, more influential empire, and were now reduced to hunkering down in VI and preparing the city for a long siege where they hoped they would win the Battle of Attrition. And with the siege in its seventh year, it appears the preparations VI made, which included building high walls, fortifying exterior walls, stocking up on defensive weapons, massing stocks of grain and corn, along with water reserves, their plan was obviously working, for now that is. The Romans, on the other hand, were not accustomed to protracted war, where they required large forces and supplies and armaments to be sustained year-round. Typically, the fighting season in Italy at the time would kick in during late spring and end before the fall harvest, or shortly thereafter. Romans and their enemies would usually winter at home, while preparing for spring-summer warfare with little chance of having to endure an attack during the winter season. However, in classic Roman fashion, the tribunes of the time had a system of forts and siege works built from Rome to Vi, successfully connecting summer warfare with winter warfare. Romans could now readily supply the siege, upping the ante in this war of attrition. Regardless of this Roman ingenuity, the siege had not forced the people of Vi to surrender, and were dug in and were ever improving their defenses and supplies all the time. The Roman Senate and the people were getting restless and felt the siege was moving too slowly. As a result, the tribunes in charge of the war effort currently were replaced with two new tribunes, one of those being Camillus. And after seven years of siege warfare, their mandate was to bring the war to a victorious end for Rome. Not one way or the other, but a decisive Roman victory. And I assume if Camillus can bring the siege to a successful end, it would pretty much assure him a place in the Roman history books, am I right? Exactly. And, you know, we should remember Rome and the Etruscans have been fighting for three centuries or more, dating back to the kingdom of Rome herself. So, yeah, this would be one for the history books. If he can pull it off, that is. 
Kimilis, now tripping for the second time, had a lot of expectations heaped on him after his past successful campaigns. However, before he was able to make serious headway in the siege, a strange phenomenon occurred, which would further drag out the siege for at least three more years, as Rome grappled with the situation. Honestly, it's an unbelievable occurrence, and after reading and rereading it, I sort of conclude that everyone would be better served with a direct Plutarch quote at this time. And quote, It was the beginning of autumn, and the summer now ending had, to all observation, been neither rainy nor much troubled with southern winds. And of the many lakes, brooks, and springs of all sorts with which Italy abounds, some were wholly dried up. Others drew very little water with them. All the rivers, as is usual in summer, ran in a very low and hollow channel. But the Alban Lake, that is fed by no other waters but its own, and is on all sides encircled with fruitful mountains, without any cause, unless it were divine, began visibly to rise and swell, increasing to the feet of the mountains, and by degrees reaching the level of the very tops of them, and all this without any waves or agitation. At first it was the wonder of shepherds and herdsmen, but when the earth, which like a great dam, held up the lake from falling into the lower grounds, through the quantity weight of water was broken down and in a violent stream it ran through the ploughed fields and plantations to discharge itself in the sea. It not only struck terror into the Romans, but was thought by all the inhabitants of Italy to portend some extraordinary event. But the greatest talk of it was in the camp that besieged Vi, so that in the town itself also the occurrence became known. End quote. Wow, so I guess nowadays something like that happening wouldn't alarm us as much because we'd have some scientists explaining the event, but at the time, without any explanation for this sudden flood, yeah, I guess it must have terrified the Romans who were trying to besiege Vi nearby. Yeah, the Romans, as Plutarch describes, were terrified, and all of Italy now was aware of the calamity, and most, including the Romans, especially those Romans in the siege camp, felt this was not a positive omen. As was customary in long sieges in ancient Rome, People from both sides of a confrontation during lulls in the fighting would get together with one another and form bonds. While this may sound strange, modern warfare has had similar bouts, such as the 1914 Christmas Truce, where Wikipedia under the title Christmas Truce explains. In the week leading up to December 25th, French, German, and British soldiers crossed trenches to exchange seasonal greetings and talk. In some areas, men from both sides venture into no man's land on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day to mingle and exchanged food and souvenirs. There were joint burial ceremonies and prisoner swaps, while several meetings ended in carol singing. Men played games of European football with one another, creating one of the most memorable images of the truce. So let's assume for this episode at least that the Romans and the people of Vi had similar occurrences of truces, where the Roman siegers and the defenders of Vi over many years formed bonds with one another. And in one such lull and subsequent truce, a clever Roman who had developed a close friendship with one of the besieged over the years, who was well-educated in ancient prophecies and was well-respected by his peers, laid a trap the besieged couldn't resist stepping into. The clever Roman overheard this man acting overjoyed of the news of the Alban Lake incident, and went on to tell him he had more secret stories about further Roman prodigies that had befallen the Romans recently, and was willing to share with the Etruscan man. The Etruscan man, being a prophet of sorts, simply couldn't resist, and followed the clever Roman away from the VI walls and out of sight, where the Roman quickly snatched the man up in his arms and carried him off to the Roman camp, 
where he would be further questioned under terrifying circumstances, revealing exactly why he was so happy about the Alban Lake incident. The Etruscan man, realizing his situation was dire and irreversible, was forced to spill the beans on the secrets of the Oracle of Vi. In this case, the Oracle of Vi had been delivered a message from the gods that Vi would not fall if the waters of Lake Alban remained outside of the lake's borders, and more importantly, the water could never enter the sea, losing its purity. With Camillus now tribune and having his new mandate to win the siege, this revelation surely threw a wrench into Camillus and the Senate's plans to end the siege quickly. Plutarch quotes, The Senate, having heard and satisfied themselves about the matter, decreed to send to Delphi to ask counsel of the gods. The messengers were persons of the highest repute, who, having made their voyage by sea and consulted the god, returned with other answers, particularly that there had been a neglect of some of their national rites relating to the Latin feasts. But the Alban water of the oracle commanded, if it were possible, they should keep from the sea and shut it up in its ancient bounds. But if that was not to be done, then they should carry it off by ditches and trenches into the lower grounds, and so dry it up. Which message being delivered, the priests performed what related to the sacrifices, and the people went to work and churned the water. End quote. Apparently, this process took three years, as Plutarch next jumps to the tenth year of the siege, leaving out any detail of these years to our imagination. The Senate, in the tenth year of the siege, named Camillus as dictator, taking away all other commands, and Camillus would name Cornelius Scipio as his general of horse. You may be getting excited thinking this is Scipio Africanus, but no, he was a distant relative of Africanus and known as the first Roman Scipio to make the histories, but wouldn't be the last. For his first order of business as dictator, Camillus made a vow to the gods that if they granted him a victory in the war at Vi, he would put on the great games Rome was becoming accustomed to in their honor and would dedicate a temple to the goddess Matuta, the mother. Returning to the siege of Vi, Camillus had a different plan in mind for ending the war. With Plutarch going on to describe as, quote, Finding that to take it by assault would prove a difficult and hazardous attempt, proceeded to cut mines underground, the earth about the city being easy to break up, and allowing such depth for the works as would prevent their being discovered by the enemy. This design going on in a hopeful way, he openly gave assaults to the enemy, to keep them to the walls, whilst they that worked underground the mines were, without being perceived, arrived within the citadel, close to the temple of Juno, which was the greatest and most honored in all the city. It is said that the prince of the Tuscans was at that very time at sacrifice, and that the priest, after he had looked into the entrails of the beast, cried out with a loud voice that the gods would give the victory to those that should complete those offerings, and that the Romans, who were in the mines, hearing the words, immediately pulled down the floor, and ascending with noise and clashing of weapons, frightened away the enemy, and snatching up the entrails, carried them to Camillus. End quote. But this may look like a fable. The city, however, being taken by storm, and the soldiers busied in pillaging and gathering an infinite quantity of riches and spoil, Camillus, from the high tower, viewing what was done, at first wept for pity. And when they that were by congratulated his good success, he lifted up his hands to heaven and broke out into this prayer. O most mighty Jupiter, and ye gods that are judges of good and evil actions, ye know that not without just cause, but constrained by necessity, we have been forced to revenge ourselves in the city of our unrighteous and wicked enemies. But if there be any calamity due to counterbalance this great felicity, I beg that it may be diverted from the city 
an army of the Romans, and fall with as little hurt as may be upon my own head. Having said these words, and just turning about, as the custom of the Romans is to turn to the right after adjuration or prayer, he stumbled and fell to the astonishment of all that were present. But recovering himself presently from the fall, he told him that he had received what he had prayed for, a small mischance in compensation for the greatest good fortune. Yeah, quick on his feet with that comment. Most definitely. With the siege of Vi and the war over, and apparently no one left the fight, Camillus returned to Rome, started completing his vows to the gods he made prior to the victory, all the while lavishing in his newfound fame. Everything was just right. No way anything could disrupt his newfound momentum, right? Wrong. And like so many great Romans before him who rose meticulously, within a few months, Camillus would be a pariah. It appears that Camillus fell into the familiar trap of overestimating the Roman people's tolerance for self-gratification, especially from their leaders. The Romans had expelled the indulgent kings, and the people time and again since always had to remind ambitious Romans who rose to prominence that the Republic, and no one Roman, shall be central to Roman culture. Camillus, likely encouraged by his warm and jubilant welcome home and his inner circle, paraded through the streets of Rome atop a chariot pulled by four magnificent white horses which no general before had ever done. The Romans considered this display to be sacred and reserved for the father of the gods, perhaps a Jupiter figure, and the Romans were not accustomed to such displays of hubris and pomp since the fall of the kingdom just over a century prior. The people were not impressed, and Camillus would never regain his popularity he held for a few weeks or months upon his return from VI. I can already guess where this is going. Unfortunately, our listeners probably do also, but for those who don't, lips sealed. Soon after, Camillus's polling would fall again when the topic of what to do with their newly captured city was brought forward as a motion by the tribunes. Remember, at this time, Camillus was now dictator and had no role in tribune matters and couldn't influence the motion from within. The motion brought forward would have seen the Senate and people divided into two parts. The Senate would, re- would remain in Rome, while those who wanted could migrate to Vi, and were comprised of the poorest Romans. The goal was to allow Roman civilization to sprawl a bit, and their logic is they could grow faster and better protect the budding Roman Republic. The Senate and the elite opposed this motion, saying this would destroy Rome and look to Camillus to use up his goodwill with the people to oppose the motion, or at least delay it. Camillus went with the latter and chose to occupy the Roman public minds with other things, such as games, war preparations, I speculate, but Plutarch doesn't make mention of what these distractions were. However, the people were fuming that Camillus had put off the tribune's motion. So I guess this is strike two for Camillus with the Roman people. Definitely. And strike three would come rapidly after the land dispute, where Camillus was reminded that he had made a vow to provide a tenth of the spoils of the war as tribute to Apollo and should make the tribute soon so not to repeat, perhaps, the prophecy of Alban Lake. However, after the sack of Vi. Camillus had not taken this tenth of the spoils and set them aside for the Apollo tribute, but doled it out in equal portions to the soldiers, who had spent ten years fighting and living in military camps and were eager for their rewards. Camillus, once his dictatorship expired, brought the matter up with the Senate, who were likely enraged and ordered the tribute be made immediately. Camillus now would sully his last bastion of support, the military who were asked to hand over a tenth of their spoils, if they had it or not. Camillus allowed for it to be of any form of value, as the actual spoils had been sold, melted, 
traded away very soon after the military returned home. The soldiers appealed vigorously to Camillus, explaining his vow was for a tenth of the enemy's spoils, not the brave soldiers who won the victory for Camillus and Rome herself. Camillus was forced to admit in public he had forgotten his vow to Apollo. Today we would shrug that off, but in those days the gods were real, and their powers were very much believed in. Remember Alban Lake? Camillus was able to convince them to pony up the gold, however, but when all was collected, they were far short of what the original target would have been. Once again, the women of Rome, like many times before, came to the rescue, lending their personal gold jewelry to the cause, which was just enough for eight talents of gold. Various sources translate one talent of gold to be around 20 to 40 kilograms, so eight talents would have been a large amount of gold. In honor of the women of Rome contributing to the tribute to Apollo, the Senate forever ordained that all Roman women would be given funeral orations after death, something previously reserved for men only. With the tribute for Apollo delivered after a brief encounter with pirates along the way, the Romans had re-secured the gods' favor and closed the chapter on the prophecy of the Alban Lake. Wow, I think that this story, even if it is just a legend perhaps, really shows how seriously the Romans took the gods. I mean, that the soldiers and Roman women were willing to hand over their treasure to be shipped to a temple in Greece, just to make sure that Camillus did not fail to live up to his promise to the god Apollo, thereby bringing the wrath of the gods upon Rome. With things settled in Rome, the tribunes of the people once again resumed their motion for the division of Rome and Vi. Lucky for Camillus, he would be able to avoid dealing with the motion for a second time, as a new uh, war broke out with one of their neighbors. Camillus, as Plutarch describes, likely had ulterior motives to quickly heading back to war. With the soldiers away from Rome, and Conci busy with their war preparations and planning, they had no time to follow the tribune's motion to divide Rome and Vi. Camillus was probably okay with a prolonged siege, with the hopes upon arrival back to Rome, this whole motion deal would be old news, and the people moved on from it. The classic art of distraction. (laughs) Yes, and not dissimilar to today's entertainment industry and social media, which distracts from real problems we all face today. Absolutely. However, things would rapidly change in the new siege to Rome's favor. As a schoolmaster for the enemy, apparently turned traitor, led a student body out of the city and served them up to the Romans. This schoolmaster demanded to see Camillus, and upon his arrival explained he could deliver the city to his hands. Plutarch quotes Camillus as follows, quote, When Camillus had heard him out, he was astounded at the treachery of the act, and turning to the standard by, observed that war indeed is of necessity attended with much injustice and violence. Certain laws, however, all good men observe even in war itself. Nor is victory so great an object as to induce us to incur, for its sake, obligations for base and impious acts. A great general should rely on his own virtue, and not on other men's vices. Which said, he commanded the officers to tear off the men's clothes, and bind his hands behind him, and give the boys rods and scourges, to punish the traitor and drive him back to the city. End quote. I don't think Camillus thought this act would end the war, but sure enough, the enemy was so impressed by this display of justice over victory, their assembly agreed to send ambassadors to Camillus to find a way to end the war. Camillus, requiring guidance from the Senate, sent them to Rome to make their concession official, to which the Senate sent the decision back to Camillus as what to do next. Camillus took a hefty tribute from the enemy and made peace with all their territories. So the war ended abruptly, and Camillus would now likely have to go home and face the tribunes and the people's motion which he had hoped 
a protracted war would have delayed indefinitely. Just as Camillus had thought, upon arrival back to Rome, many of the soldiers who came back empty-handed after Camillus made premature peace rallied the people and the tribunes of the people against Camillus and defined him as a man who hated the people and hated providing the poor with any advantages. Camillus was able to convince enough people to decline the motion again, but the people, regardless, now hated Camillus, and even after a surprise incident which took the life of his son, the people had little pity for him, and he was brought up on charges of appropriation of the Tuscan spoils from the siege of Vi, specifically certain brass gates. Part of those spoils were said to be in his possession. Whether true or not, the people at this point were ready to condemn Camillus on any occasion, valid or not. Camillus tried to reason with his friends and colleagues to resist these charges, but after private consultations, they agreed there was nothing they could do, other than helping him pay whatever fine was levied against him. Camillus, not able to take this rejection he was feeling from the whole of Rome, he resolved in his anger to leave the city and go into exile. And so, having taken leave of his wife and son, he went silently to the gate of the city, and there, stopping and churning round, stretched out his hands to the capital and prayed to the gods that if, without any fault of his own, but merely through the malice and violence of the people, he was driven out into banishment, the Romans might quickly repent of it, and that all mankind might witness their need for the assistance and desire for the return of Camillus. We shall leave it here for part one with Camillus and self-assigned banishment at his lowest popularity he had ever known, and Rome without its mightiest leader. Stay tuned for part two as the story of Camillus heats up with even more history to be made. Thanks for listening to Plutarch's Greeks and Romans podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to head over to our blog at plutarchsgreeksromans.wordpress.com or check out Plutarch's Greeks and Romans on Facebook. And don't forget to leave us a review on whichever podcast service you are using. See you next time.